Pablo Casales is considered the greatest cellist who ever lived. I'm sure that all of you are totally familiar with that individual. When he was 95 years old, he was asked why he continued to practice six hours a day. 95 years old and was still practicing six hours a day. And when he was asked that question, he answered, because I think I'm making progress. He's a great example of what, as Christians, we ought to be thinking about and the attitude that we ought to have when it comes to the second member of our Fantastic Four, which is grow. When we're talking about growing Christians, wouldn't it be amazing if all of us had the attitude of this cellist? That at 95 years old, we're dedicating our lives to growing in Christ, and our answer would be, I think I'm making progress. We're going to be looking at Psalm 1. We're going to be jumping over to Jeremiah, where Pastor Andy uh, read from at the very beginning of the service, because both of those passages actually go hand in hand with each other and showing us what a growing follower of Christ looks like. If I was going to have two points, and I think Diane actually took them from last night because I didn't have them. I just said them, and she, uh, she's like, I, I, I wrote them down. I got them down. If I was going to put two points to this message, I would say these two things. First, we're going to look at what a growing Christian looks like, and then secondly, we're going to look at what God uses to make us grow. Actually, in the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at right off the bat, you can say, wow, there's aspects of what God uses to make us grow in that passage, and it's true. But I want to hone in on one specific thing that God does and uses to cause us to grow as believers. But I think it's important that we dive into Psalm 1 first, and so we're going to read Psalm 1, and eventually I'll jump over to Jeremiah 17, but let's read Psalm 1 together. It says this, How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Right off the bat, the psalm writer identifies what it looks like to be a growing follower of Christ. Right off the bat, there are clear things that differentiate someone who is growing in their relationship with God versus someone who is not. There's actually a big contrast here between saved followers of Christ, Christians, those who have dedicated their life to God, and those who are not, those who have not. Scripture, time and time again, Jesus even talks about it in the Gospels. There's only two groups of people. Sometimes we like to try to put groups of people into groups of people. 
We do it all the time. Those who like the New England Patriots and then the rest of the world who doesn't. Or Maple Leafs fans versus Canadians fans. We can get into that. Cat lovers versus dog lovers. Anyway, we, my dad sold me down the river last week or two weeks ago talking about cats because he's not a fan. But really, there's only two groups of people that Scripture talks about. Either those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who are fully devoted to God, or those who are not. And everybody in this room is going to find themselves in one of those two categories. There's no in-between. We're talking about what it looks like to be a fully devoted follower of Christ, a growing believer, a growing Christian. And there's some things that the psalm writer right off the bat says about what it looks like to be a growing follower of Christ. There's some characteristics of someone who's growing in their walk with God. And he lays it out very quickly, very succinctly, that there are things that we do and then there are the things that we don't do. And the psalm writer starts off on the negative because he wants to get to the positive. And so he lays it out right off the bat, and I want to point this out. It says in my version of Scripture, how happy is the one who does not, and then he continues on. It's important to understand that actually in the Hebrew, translating it into the English, the word happy is, an, is, is a fine word to use. Some of your versions of Scripture may say blessed. Blessed is the one. See, a happy person, a genuinely happy person in the Lord understands that they're blessed by God. And though, even though their circumstances might not always lend to the happy feeling, there is still a godly contentment that exists because I know that I've been blessed by God. And so, in my version of Scripture, we can accurately say, because it's not really a feeling that they're talking about, but this godly contentment based on the blessing that I understand that I have, he says, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the way, the pathway of, with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Some commentary writers like to say that there is a progression here in that particular conversation. There are others that say it's not really a progression, it's actually a manner of life that's being talked about, and I, choose, I, I, I fully believe that the latter is actually more correct. That there isn't really a progression that's being talked about here. It's not like they're walking and then it gets worse and then they're standing, because that would kind of make no sense, because generally if you're standing, the next progression is to walk, and then the next progression is probably not to sit, so that kind of doesn't make any sense. The psalm writer saying, is this your manner of life or not? When you're walking, are you walking with wicked people? People who don't have any desire to follow God. People that hate God. People that slander God. That literally make fun of His Word. People that want to follow their own passions even though the Word of God says, no, don't do that. That's going to lead to ruin. That's going to destroy your life. Are we walking with those kinds of people? Are we getting advice from those kind of people? A growing, godly follower of Jesus doesn't do that. Psalm writer continues on, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Now, we need to come, off, we need to, to, come to a point where we understand that the psalm writer is not saying that as fully devoted followers of Christ, we isolate ourselves from the world. 
and we have no interaction with people who don't know Christ. That's not what the psalm, psalm writer is talking about. Because if we're going to be consistent with Scripture, Jesus tells us as a church to be in the world but not of the world. We need to interact with those around us who don't know Christ as their Savior. That's the only way that we can fulfill the Great Commission. We are called by Christians to be godly people in our community, sharing with people the love of Jesus Christ, the reason why they need Christ as their Lord and Savior. I can't do that if I shut the doors of my church to people who want to come in and hear the gospel. I can't accomplish that if I don't invite people to come out to a Bible study or to a worship time so that they have the opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't do that if I shut myself in my home and I never interact with my colleagues who, if they died tomorrow, would go to a Christless eternity because I couldn't be bothered to tell them about Jesus. The psalm writer is saying, as a Christian, I don't do those things, but my lifestyle, what I dedicate my life to, is not following after wicked people. Is not getting advice for sinful people. From not sitting in the company of mocking people. See, in the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the term mocker is synonymous with what Proverbs calls the fool. The mocker is a fool in Proverbs. Chapter 9, verse 8. Chapter 14, verse 6. He does not respond to instruction. Proverbs 9, 7. And Proverbs 15, 12. But stirs up strife by his insults. Proverbs 22, 10. He delights in mocking. Proverbs 1, 22. I have to ask myself the question. I have to ask you guys the question. If I was to analyze my life right now, would I sound more like the fool or more like a follower of Jesus? Do I spend more time ignoring and not responding to the instruction of the Holy Spirit through God's Word? That's more the character quality of a fool, not a follower. Do I stir up strife by my insults? That sounds more like the fool than the follower. See, that kind of lifestyle should not ever be represented in a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, Scripture in verses 2 through 3 explains what a fully devoted follower of Christ looks like. The psalmist says this, instead, so instead of these things, because this doesn't represent what a fully devoted follower of Christ looks like, instead his company excuse me, instead his delight is in the law of the Lord or in the Lord's instruction. The fully devoted follower of Christ delights in God's word. The complete opposite to the ungodly person, to the mocker, to the fool. Instead, he delights in the Lord's instruction. He meditates on it day and night. In order to kind of get a good picture of what the psalm writer is talking about, I want you to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. I'm going to have you flip over to the first 
chapter of Joshua in just a second because Joshua really reiterates what Moses says here. But if you want to know what a growing Christian looks like, it's a person who delights in the law of the Lord, who in fact meditates on it day and night. And what does that look like? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7, this is what Moses says to the children of Israel. We want to look at what a growing Christian looks like. It looks like this. He says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. A dedicated, growing Christian loves God with every fiber of their being. Not only that, but it says this, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. He's giving the Lord's commands to them. He's saying, this is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. And he gives those instructions to them. And he says this, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. I jokingly turned to Pastor Josh last night and said, can you imagine if we wrote the word of God on the city gates? We get arrested for vandalism. But it's this mentality that it, the word of God permeates every part of our daily life. From the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, if we're not praying over it, if we're not reading it, if we're not studying it, if we're not meditating on it, then we're at least talking about it with somebody. We're thinking about it. We've got it written on in our house so that we see it. It's so part of our life that we know what God's Word is saying when we're interacting with any situation that comes. Jesus set that example. When he was led out by the Holy Spirit to be tempted, what did Jesus do every time he was tempted by the devil? And by the way, most of our temptation comes from our sinful flesh. Let's make no mistake. The devil is a formidable enemy that we need to take seriously, but the devil is not omnipresent. Sometimes we give him way too much credit. I can't say, oh, the devil made me do it, simultaneously to Justin saying, the devil made me do it, because the devil ain't in two places at the same time. That's only God. My flesh often is the one that's stirring up that temptation. But Jesus was literally tempted by the devil and every time he was tempted, what did Jesus do? Quoted scripture to him. Went right back at him with the word of God and defeated him with the word of God. If we don't know the word of God, when that temptation comes, we're hung out to dry. But a fully devoted follower of Christ knows how to take on those challenges because they have the word of God in their mind all the time. They're meditating on it. They're living in it. They're permeated by it. We delight in it. We take pleasure in it. I had to ask myself the question, do I really delight in the law of the Lord? Do I really delight in the word of God? Or do I find it sometimes an inconvenient truth or a demanding book that's asking me to do all these things 
they got all these rules that I have to follow, and I have to have all these rules that I can't, you know, that tell me I can't do this. Do I honestly find that it's just grueling and drudgery when I read the Word of God? Oh, here's something else that the Word of God tells me I can't do. That's not what a real, growing follower of Jesus thinks of the Word of God. Is it difficult to understand sometimes? Yes. I was talking to somebody just recently. I was talking about the fact that I was working through the book of Amos not too long ago. And we were talking about whether or not Scripture is, is, is necessary or important or, or applicable to us as New Testament believers. You know, when we're reading the Old Testament, is, this, is, this, is there any value in reading the Old Testament? Somebody asked me. I said, absolutely. And they're like, yeah, but what about? And I said, if I take God's Word at face value, the way it says, what it says about itself, Scripture says all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for reproof, for correcting, and righteousness. If I believe that, if I really believe that the, whole, that the Word of God is actually sufficient for everything, then even though I'm reading a passage in the Old Testament that I find difficult, I'm keeping in mind this is either for my instruction or it's for my correction or for, it's for me to help understand doctrine. And I said to that person, I said, recently I just went through the book of Amos. I don't even know if I'll ever preach through the book of Amos. Maybe. It's not an easy book. The book of Amos deals with God's judgment on the nations over and over again. You're just like, wow, this is harsh. Well, you know what it tells me? You know what it taught me? That a holy God can't stand sin. And that in his justice and his righteousness, he has to deal with it. Or he wouldn't be just. Am I applying that to my own life? Well, not the way that it's written right in the book of Amos, but you know what? I'm learning something about God from a book that's super difficult. And I'm delighting in it because I'm learning something about who God is. I'm not finding it grueling. If I remember that God is a God who loves me, who is a loving Father who wants what's best for me, when I'm reading a passage of Scripture that tells me, don't do this because it's going to ruin you, then I need to look at that with delight and say, you know what? My Heavenly Father loves me so much, He's telling me, stay away from this because it's going to destroy your life. And I'm going, boys, I'm sure glad that He said that to me. Boys, I'm sure glad that He puts these barriers up in my life so that I don't stupidly go over them and destroy myself. They're there because He loves me. Do I take those instructions that, you know what, the world's telling me, ah, oh, don't do that, that's just, that's a killjoy. God's a killjoy. Instead, do I go, you know what, no, I delight in that because God loves me. And he wants what's best for me. When I think about the gospel, you know, the gospel can be offensive without us even being offensive people. We don't have to be offensive people and obnoxious, rude, nasty people. We're supposed to be loving, our, our, our language is supposed to be seasoned with salt and grace, the scriptures say. But you know, there are times when we're just sharing the love of Christ and we're sharing the gospel and people get offended. Why? Because nobody wants to hear that they're a sinner. But you know what? God loves us so much that he doesn't want us walking around deluded thinking that we're great people. Because then we won't come to that place where we trust Jesus Christ to save us from our sin because we think we're great enough to make our way into heaven on our own. And God says, you know what, the reason why I love you so much is I'm going to give you the hard truth so that you understand who you are in light of who I am. 
and to know that, you know what, all people are sinful people. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. None of us measure up. That's why we need Jesus. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross of Calvary, was buried, rose again three days later, so that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can have that relationship with Almighty God. And God loved us so much that he shared that with us. He's not doing it to bring us down. He's doing it to build us up, to give us life. Do I look at that and say, wow, isn't that awesome that God shared that with me? Isn't that awesome that I have that opportunity to share that with somebody else? Do I delight in the law of the Lord? Do I delight in his instruction? Joshua and Joshua 1, verses 7 through 8 says this, Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction that my servant Moses commanded you. You know what? It just jumped out at me in this very second when I read that. We like to read that first part and says, be, be strong and very courageous. You know, and, and we're thinking in light of what we know about the book of Joshua coming after that. But in that moment, Joshua's not saying, hey, be strong and very courageous because eventually we're going to get to Jericho and we're going to have to take on that city. I want you to think about the context of what Joshua's saying right here. It just dawned on me. Joshua's saying, above all, be very strong and very courageous to do what? Not to take on the giants in the land, not to take on the Jerichos of the land. It says to be, to, to observe carefully the whole instruction from my servant Moses. Did you know that it actually takes courage to follow God's word? You ever thought about that? There are times when we as Christians have to stick to what God's word says as opposed to what somebody else says. And you know, it takes some courage to do that because we know the backlash that we're going to get. There are countries around the world right now that just bringing a Bible into the country is illegal. And yet they put their lives on the line because why? Because they are strong and courageous and they follow this before they follow the government that says you can't have a Bible in this country to tell people about Jesus. And their response is, you know what? I'm obeying this first. Because people need to hear Jesus, and they need a Bible in their country, and I'm going to bring it in. And they're risking their lives day in and day out because they're strong and courageous to observe what God tells them to do. He says, be strong and very courageous to observe the whole instruction that my servant Moses has commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to meditate on it day and night so that you will carefully observe everything written in it. Not some of it. Not the things that you like from it. Not the things that are convenient in the situation that you find yourself in. Joshua says that you would carefully observe everything in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Now I have to pause and make sure that we understand what Joshua is saying and what the Bible says when we're talking about prosperity here and success here. And I'm going to use the passage of Scripture to bring it back into focus. Prosperity to the righteous does not necessarily extend to the assurance of great wealth. 
Will God prosper his followers sometimes with great wealth? As, absolutely. There are people here in this room that God is blessed with great wealth. I firmly believe it's because they love the Lord. They're dedicated to God. They give extraordinarily to God's work. And God continues to bless them. But some of us, God is blessed not with material wealth, but with talents and abilities that he's asking us to serve him with. With intelligence to use, to be able to communicate to people who most of us would never be able to communicate with. I got two friends that are doctors. I'm not saying that because I think myself special. I'm just fortunate to have two friends who are physicians, and they have the opportunity to interact with people I will never have a chance to talk to, to, to about Jesus. God has blessed them with intelligence and ability beyond anything that I've got so that they have the opportunity to share the gospel with people that they work with. That's what God's done. He's blessed them. He's prospered them in that area so that they can do the work that God's called them to do. It's not necessarily an assurance of great wealth, but it is primarily God's blessing on our work and our words. I want to just draw your attention to Psalm 90, verses 14 through 17. It says this, Satisfy us in the morning with your faithful love so that we may shout with joy and be glad all of our days. Make us rejoice for as many days as you have humbled us. For as many years you have, we have seen adversity. Let your work be seen by your servants and your splendor by your children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be on us. Establish us for the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. The psalm writer says, God, you have prospered me with my words and my work to do your ministry. Here's the thing. Does the world around us see a bunch of lazy Christians doing very little for Christ? Because God's prospered us so that we work for him that everything that we do is for his honor and for his glory to build the kingdom. So whatever your job is, maybe you're a construction worker, God has blessed you with the ability to do that so that you can be a witness to the people that you work with on the construction site. But if they hear you talking about Jesus and you're the worst worker on the construction site, guess what? They're not listening to what you have to say. The Bible makes it abundantly clear what our attitude towards work ought to be as believers. But he also establishes our words in this particular psalm. It's for his praise and for his glory. But I got to say, I've been discouraged this week. And if you pay attention to other churches, you'll have seen lots of social media posts by those churches, by their pastors saying this and that and the other, coming in and out of what we're coming in and out of. And I've been very hesitant. I've actually asked our staff not to really post much of anything. And here's why. Because it's been drawn, my, my attention's been drawn to multiple times when this person or that person or this church or that church has released something. And the nasty, wicked comments that come by Christians to other Christians is awful. Absolutely ungodly if I can say it. And the world's looking at Christians eating themselves over some of the things that we face. 
when God is calling us to a different standard. Whether we agree on something or disagree on something, it gives us no right to be unloving and nasty people to the saved or the unsaved. We are tearing down the name of Jesus when we do that sort of stuff. And you know what? If I'm a growing, dedicated follower of Christ, my words not, ought not to be like that. The Word of God tells me that if I'm growing and prospering and I'm in God's Word, then fruit is going to be produced in my life. In John chapter 15, and I'm not going to read it all, but I want us to see it. In John chapter 15, this is what Jesus says. In John chapter 15, he says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he removes. He he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it can produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. I cannot be an effective follower of Jesus Christ unless I'm abiding in Christ. And how I abide in Christ is I'm in here all the time. And God's producing much fruit so that the fruit that I see in my life is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, humility. These are things that God's producing in our lives. And so when I come up against somebody who doesn't have the same opinion as me, I'm not nasty and mean. I'm loving. I'm gentle. I'm patient. Did you ever realize that the word patience, patience always deals with my interaction with people? See, James, in James chapter 1, and I encourage you to Turn there because I'm going to quickly wrap up. God uses his word to mature me, to grow me, but he uses trials to grow me. And make no mistake, we're in the middle of trials. As a society, as a church, we're in the middle of trials. Some of you are in the midst of trials that you can't even possibly express to us. Whether it's severe illness or the loss of a loved one or a divorce or something else, you're going through intense trials. James tells us that those trials are to mature us as believers. In James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, it says this Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Hard, hard, hard thing for him to say. He's not telling us that we don't go through trials. He's not telling us that he doesn't understand the gravity and the, 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 the heartbreak of these trials. What he's saying is, you know what? There's a way that we can consider it with joy because we know what the trial is for. He says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance or steadfastness is not the same as patience but they're very similar. God produces patience in us towards other people. 
God produces endurance in us towards trials, towards circumstances. They're two different character qualities, but they work hand in hand. If I'm a fully devoted follower of Christ, God's producing love and patience and gentleness in me towards people, but he's also producing endurance, resilience in the midst of my circumstances. Let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The reason why God brings trials into our lives, and by the way, the Bible is not saying if he brings trials, it's when he brings trials. Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble, period. But then Jesus says, take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus is stating a reality. But we also know that we have a loving Heavenly Father that takes those trials and uses them to refine us and develop us and make us into mature believers. Peter says the exact same thing in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says that the trials that we go through, the reason why we suffer trials is to test the genuineness of our faith. Because people who call themselves believers but are not genuine believers, when the chips are down and the pressure's on, they walk away. I'm going to close with this. And then I'm going to read just one passage of Scripture so that you can see it exemplified in the life of the person who made the statement that I'm going to read. But I want to give you an illustration first. In 1973, a horse named Secretariat, many of you know the name of this horse. Many of you may not. In 1973, a horse named Secretariat became a legend in its time. Not only did Secretariat win the triple crown of thoroughbred racing, which is apparently a major feat, but he did it with unprecedented performance. At the Belmont Stakes, he not only won the race by 31 lengths, he did it, excuse me, but he set the new, a new record along the way as he went faster and faster in each phase of the run. Of the run. For one and one half miles, that famous thoroughbred ran faster every second. Secretariat was accelerating at such an incredible pace that his trainer noted that if the race had been extended by another lap, his heart literally would have exploded. That's dedication. That's commitment. That's why Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept, kept the faith. By the way, Paul didn't just say that as some platitude. Paul said it because he exemplified it. I want to just read in closing this passage of Scripture. You think you've got trials? Watch this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says these things in talking to the Corinthians, and he's not saying it to brag, but he wants them to understand. These false teachers that were coming into, the, in, into uh, the church were bragging about this, that, and the other. And Paul's like, okay, you want me to brag? I'll brag. He says, but in whatever anyone dares to boast, I'm talking foolishly. Why? Because he's not really bragging. He's just stating a reality of the trials that he's been through. I also dare. I'm a he Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I'm better. I'm a better one. 
with far more labors and far more imprisonments, far, more, far worse beatings, and many times near death. This is what Paul says about the trials that he faced that have matured him as a believer. Five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. I was reading this. I, I, I actually had to try to start visualizing what he would have gone through. I want you to try to just put yourself in this position for a second. Five times he received 39 whippings. Three times I was beaten with rods. That is a Roman punishment done by Roman soldiers. Do you think that they were taking it easy? No. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. Uh, shipwrecked. I have spent a night in the day in the open sea. Of frequent journeys I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, with, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things that were the daily pressure on me, my concern for the churches. Then he says this, Who is weak, and am I not weak? Who is made to stumble? Did I not burn with indignation if I boast if boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying in Damascus, a ruler under the king, Arteus, or uh, guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. And then he talks about his escape. Paul says, you know what, I'm, in my weakness, I'm made strong. I've gone through these trials. Why? Because God was maturing him through these trials. He was learning where he could say in, first, in, in Philippians, I have learned in all things to be content. Are we recognizing that the trials that God is bringing us through is to mature us, not to beat us down, not to discourage us, not to get us to turn on one another, but as a body of believers to solidify us and firm us up so that we will walk together as mature believers? Are you willing to fight the good fight, finish the race, Keep the faith? Are you getting into God's word and letting God's trials that he's bringing to you make you into a growing, maturing believer so that when you're 95 years old and somebody asks, hey, why do you spend so much time in God's word? Because I'm making progress. Progress.